Welcome to Encounter God's Truth, a weekly Bible teaching radio and internet outreach of Whitcomb Ministries, declaring timeless truths for changing times. This week, we begin Volume 5 in our ongoing series, Acts, Witness of the Early Church. I'm Wayne Shepherd, your host, and we're excited to share this great new content with you. It comes from Dr. Whitcomb's teaching through the book of Acts over the course of six years at the Independent Fundamental Bible Conference, where he spoke annually at the Middletown Bible Church in Middletown, Connecticut. We've been presenting these studies on Acts, Witness of the Early Church over the past several years on Encounter God's Truth, and today we open Volume 5. We bring it to you with permission and assistance from Middletown Bible Church, and we sincerely thank them. If you're new to our program, you can catch up with our first four volumes in this series by going to our archives at sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb. You can also visit whitcombministries.org to find out more about Dr. Whitcomb, a seminary professor, author, and Bible teacher for nearly 70 years. And we'll use today's program to prepare for these next weeks in Acts, going back over the text we last examined in Acts 13, where we learn about Barnabas and Saul teaching in the church in Antioch. Dr. Wickham shares lessons about preparing to serve the Lord in this message titled, Readiness for Whose Sending? Here's Dr. John Whitcomb. I invite you to turn in your Bible again to the book of Acts, the wonderful Acts of the Apostles, yes, but primarily of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit in the church. An amplified title for this wonderful book of Acts written by the beloved physician Luke. He was probably the greatest historian in the history of the Roman Empire. We have some outstanding historians from the Roman Empire, but he was the greatest because everything he said was absolutely perfect and intricately detailed in its accuracy, and he said things that we're only beginning to discover and confirm through historical research and archaeological discovery, and we say, well, of course, I'm not surprised at all. Uh, God doesn't inspire writings that have errors in them or contradictions, like other so-called religious books of our day. And I say, thank you, Lord, for this magnificent treatise from Paul's medical companion, Luke, who, of course, was the only Gentile who wrote New Testament writings. And we say, well, thank you, Lord, for what we have read these days together and studied and what we will now look at, God willing, in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 Verse 21, at this great, great city of Antioch, the third greatest city in the Roman Empire at that time, maybe 800,000 people, just about the same size as our current home city of Indianapolis, Indiana, we read that the hand of the Lord was with them, those men who had come to preach not only to the Jews, but also to the Greeks preaching the Lord Jesus. I wonder if it's intentional that the Spirit of God didn't say preaching Jesus Christ. What's Christ mean? Messiah. That's a special name for Jesus for Jews. Now, these are Greeks, and so they're preaching the Lord Jesus. And, of course, I'm sure as they began to unfold to them the marvels of who Jesus really, really is, they would point out that he was Israel's Messiah, but nevertheless, it's now becoming a Gentile ministry. 
And we are trying to emphasize these days how spectacular that is and how marvelous it is and how unpredicted it was. Not just take that for granted. Gentiles now on an equal standing with Jews before a holy God, the God who made an unconditional covenant, remember, to Abraham, which he will someday fulfill when he reactivates that nation after the church has been completed and carried up to heaven, then Israel once again will be grafted back into that olive tree of divine blessing and function. But nevertheless, there's a Gentile ministry, the first real Gentile church recorded in the New Testament. Now watch what happened here, please. We're going to focus on certain personalities and events here that I trust will be helpful for us in understanding what's coming in the rest of the book of Acts and in church history. Verse 22. Then tidings of these things came into the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem. And I'm sure you're beginning to think, oh no. Now, of course, they will have to have a delegation down to Jerusalem and apologize and explain and expostulate on the fact that they are a legitimate work based on, of course, on the precedent of who? Cornelius, you see. But no, it's now, of course, well known in Jerusalem among the apostles and the uh, Orthodox Christian leaders that a Gentile ministry is legitimate. But there's still a minority, remember, in the Jerusalem church that's got some very serious questions about this. So the mother church now is showing official concern. They're not demanding that these uh, Gentiles from Antioch come down to Jerusalem and give an account of, of what's happening. But they send a man who is an outstanding, godly, humble, gracious, spirit filled servant of the Lord, whose name is Barnabas. Dear Barnabas, now watch what happens. They sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. Now, don't you love this description of Barnabas in verse 24? I wonder how many of us would be thus described if Luke had an extended book of Acts and all the way up to the year 2006 AD uh, here in Middletown, Connecticut or New England or wherever. Look at this. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and much people were added unto the Lord. Now friends, that's a kind of risky statement, isn't it? To describe a man with a sin nature. He was a good man. You remember the rich man, a rich man, came up to Jesus one day and said, uh, Oh, what? Good teacher. And Jesus said, Well, why do you call me good? Now, of course, liberals love that verse, don't they? Because he said, No one is good but God. Now, what's Jesus therefore saying? Careful. Don't call me good unless you also can call me God. Thank you. Now, of course... He knew the problem that that young man had, and he's going to deal with that and confront him on that point. But nevertheless, thank the Lord 
There is such thing in the New Testament as a good man, a good woman, a good person in Christ. We understand now we have his goodness, the goodness of God in Christ, imputed to us, transferred to us, counted to us, to our account, so that if we use the term cautiously, with that in mind, of course, uh, we can say, well, Luke, yes, uh, thank you for telling us that there are some good people, even in God's sight positionally, in Christ. Thank you. And uh, not only that, friends, I mean, Luke had already said that of another man. You remember who came with Nicodemus to take the body of Jesus and put it in, in his new tomb? And who was he? Joseph of Arimathea. And it says he was a good man, which obviously has to mean he was a believer, like Nicodemus, a born-again man, who used his God-given wealth, which, by the way, is predicted, I think, in Isaiah 53, he'll be with the rich in his burial. Okay? But he was a man who loved the Lord and, and knew the Lord and wanted to honor the Lord Jesus. Now, of course, we're not asking the question, did Joseph of Arimathea really know that Jesus was only going to be temporarily in his tomb? And then three days rise again. I will leave that point with the Lord. I have my serious question whether any of them really understood that. Possibly John. I mean, that is a question I want to ask the Lord someday. Was there anybody that really believed in his heart of hearts that you would really come back from the dead? Even John? But uh, here were good people. Joseph of Arimathea and now Barnabas described that way. But another thing I trust is, is obviously true potentially of all of us. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that is something that doesn't happen just once. At the moment of conversion, I assume we're filled with the Holy Spirit, but especially what happens. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit at conversion, at regeneration, the moment of justification, of adoption into the family of God. But occasionally, and hopefully frequently, if not continually, through our Christian life, we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which means what? Controlled. Under his control, under his direction, consciously asking him for guidance and open to his word to teach us along the way. That is what the New Testament means by being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not a prerogative of special people, you see, but of every Christian to be guided by, led by, taught by the Holy Spirit, and therefore sensitized to his priority as, as our teacher and our leader and our protector, our Lord. Okay? Well, that's a wonderful combination, isn't it? As uh, the official delegate from the Mother Church in Jerusalem to the great, new, flourishing Gentile church at Antioch. So I say, well, thank you, Lord, for this man Barnabas. And, uh, oh, look what he did. He saw that the work was so enormous in terms of what? Need of teaching, instruction in the deep things of God that someone suddenly came to his mind. Who was that? Saul of Tarsus. Friends, he had been away for nine or ten years since Barnabas had first done what? Introduced him to the apostles to subdue their fears and the fears of the saints of Jerusalem that maybe Saul of Tarsus was just playing some kind of a game here and pretending he was a disciple in order to trap people and destroy them. But uh, Barnabas, dear Barnabas, brought him 
to the apostles, introduced him, and helped to get him out of Jerusalem when his life was endangered. That is, when Saul's life was endangered, you remember, by the Grecian Jews, and got him back down to the coast and shipped him back off to Tarsus. And we were wondering, well, what's he been doing these 10 years up there? Talk about the book of Acts, friends, being a lengthy book. How long do you think the book of Acts would be of everything that Paul and Saul ever did is recorded? To say nothing of everything Peter did and all the apostles, this is an extremely brief summary of the amazing things that God did through these men as foundation pieces in the early church. So I'm going to add that to my list of 86 questions I want to ask the Lord someday. What in the world was Saul doing during those 10 years? We're just sure he must have been serving the Lord, telling people about Jesus. <clears throat> Maybe he was excommunicated from his home synagogue and he was dispossessed of all of his possessions. That's he describes that. You remember in Philippians 3, I suffered the loss of all things. I just counted like refuse, dung, because of the treasure I have in Christ. And other things, I mean, he may have been beaten several times. He talks about those things, how many things he suffered for the sake of Christ. And maybe a lot of that was going on. And we read later in chapter 15 that there were churches up there now by the 15th chapter in Cilicia, his home province, and also in Syria where he went. And I want to know what was going on up there. And I'd also like to know this. It says that Barnabas went to Tarsus to seek Saul. May I suggest that wasn't an easy discovery to make? Where in the world is Saul of Tarsus? And maybe nobody wanted to say anything about Saul of Tarsus. It was a notorious name, maybe a dangerous name to mention. You don't want to say, I'm a friend of Saul of Tarsus. Come over, I'll show him to you. And uh, that's what happened. You remember, I mentioned the other day in... In Cilicia, here in the first century A.D., and say, I'm a friend of Saul of Tarsus. Be careful. He found him maybe in a dungeon somewhere or something. You know, I am very interested in um, another situation. You remember when Paul ended up in a dungeon in Rome, out of which he never emerged alive. I mean, he was beheaded there, remember, in his last letter to Timothy, just before he died, he said this, The Lord give mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, which suggests that Onesiphorus is dead. See, give mercy to his family, his home. For he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. Now watch. But when he was in Rome... He sought me out very diligently and found me. Guess where? In a dungeon? Not very, I mean, like risky to be identified looking for Paul. The Lord grant him unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well, Timothy. He sought me diligently and found me. Say, well, all they had to do is just look up on the phone book where people, no, not easy in those ancient cities to locate anybody. So I say, well, thank you, Lord, for the courage you gave to Barnabas. He's not only a good man and controlled by the Holy Spirit, but he's a courageous man, a dedicated man. And he finally found Saul of Tarsus. Oh, Saul, 
we've missed you all these years. Tell us what you've been doing. And Saul says, thank you, Barnabas. You're such a gracious and godly friend. By the way, in spite of some problems we're going to talk about in a moment they had with each other later, they remained friends, lifelong friends. Well, he brought him to the church at Antioch. And uh, what happened? It came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. I mean, they became so prominent in that city as a, almost a subculture. They acquired a name which I'm sure was given in derision, don't you think? These little Christs here, these people that keep talking about Christ, Christ all the time, Christians. And uh, I say, well, thank you, Lord. They are now learning that Jesus is the Christ, and they're telling everybody that they have to worship this person who is God incarnate and the Savior of the world. Now, don't you think that during the 10 years that Saul was there in his home province, at a safe distance from his enemies, the Grecian Jews of Jerusalem, that he was searching the scriptures daily about the prophetic light God had given to him now, insights, and that his preaching here in Antioch was far deeper than it had been back there in uh, Damascus and even Jerusalem years earlier. Yes, friends, even for Saul of Tarsus, it was a matter of what? Grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Day by day, growing, understanding, insights, comparing Scripture with Scripture. And I say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for that encouragement that you're in no hurry to launch Saul into the ministry. By the way, was God in any hurry to lead the Exodus through the help of Moses when he killed one Egyptian? No. It was a slightly premature exodus. The only exodus was Moses himself, who was chased out of the country and entered into a God-designed postgraduate program in humility that lasted 40 years. And finally, notice, when God wants to send a servant, he's in no hurry until he prepares the servant to do what the servant's supposed to be doing. Don't rush into the ministry. In fact, someone has said, I don't want to take this too far. If there's anything else you can do, don't go in the ministry. <laughs> if you say, well, I, I, I just must, I just must master God's word and share with everybody I can everything God ever taught me, then go ahead under God's direction and blessing and enable. But don't rush ahead. Don't lay hands suddenly on any man who is what? Immature, unprepared. Now, see it. You say, well, Lord, 10 more years for Saul to get ready even to teach there in Antioch under the jurisdiction of Barnabas? I'm very interested in that. All right. Now a crisis comes. Beginning, please, in verse 27. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus. Now, we're going to see him later in chapter 21. He's going to have some very ominous things to say to Paul, who, you know, is going to be imprisoned in Jerusalem at the end of the book of Acts. And Agabus, we'd like to know more about him too, wouldn't we? 
Uh, he signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth, a famine, uh, throughout all the world. Now, in the New Testament, that generally means the Roman Empire and somewhat beyond the Roman Empire, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. We read about this famine, by the way, not only in our famous Jewish historian Josephus, but in two very prominent Roman historians, Tacitus and Suetonius. Tell us about that. In the days of Claudius the emperor, probably around 46 A.D., 46. And so this was an occasion, an opportunity under God for the Gentile Christians up there in Antioch to show their love and appreciation for all that the Jerusalem saints had provided for them in terms of truth and foundation realities of the church. So the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now, friends, uh, would you like to know about uh, a great uh, disasters, something about disasters that strike the earth from time to time in different places and ways? We are a little bit staggered by some of the disasters we've seen. Who could have believed at the beginning of this century, the year 2000, that peace on earth, goodwill to men would not characterize the days that would follow. I mean, the following year was 9-1-1. Anyone still remember that? Okay. And uh, a year and a half ago, at the end of December, came a tsunami in the Indian Ocean that was so colossal. I mean, just a little shift of the crust of the earth at the bottom of the Indian Ocean west of Sumatra, maybe the ocean floor a split at that point and collapsed maybe 30 or 40 feet like this. And since water cannot be compressed, it created a shock wave moving 500 miles an hour that swept 14 nations 3,000 miles away with uh, waves 40 feet high and a quarter of a million people died. Anybody remember something that happened in the New Orleans area this last year and some mudslides in California and some hurricanes in Florida and maybe some tornadoes in the Midwest and some ice storms up north and lightning bolts here and there. You say, now, what, what's going on in this world? Why would God allow a thing like that? Well, ask Elijah. He was the famine drought man of the Old Testament. He said to the northern kingdom, you will not have one drop of rain for three and a half years. And they didn't. By the way, he's coming back again, you know, and the first thing he's going to do, according to Revelation 11, he will announce a drought on the Holy Land that will last how long? Three and a half years. The entire years of his ministry as one of the two witnesses will be characterized in the Holy Land by a drought. Okay? You say, why does God do these awful things to people? Well, you have seen some good studies on this. I'm, I haven't searched your book table back here, but I picked up this booklet a couple weeks ago, uh, Why Does God Allow Disasters? And uh, 
Well, number one, natural disasters display the fearful magnificence of God and gives all the scripture references, namely that uh, God is to be revered and God is all-powerful and nature doesn't have a will of its own and God does nothing without an infinitely wide, wise purpose and, and uh, Satan really didn't have any control and doesn't today of natural disasters. I mean, Isaiah 45 says... Uh, that I'm the one who does evil and good. I bring disasters and I'm the only God there is. Thank you. That's a little hard to handle when you're dealing with an unbeliever who's complaining about our God that he has heard we think is a God of love. And uh, secondly, God is taking and taking thousands of lives is a blaring reminder that life belongs to God and is on a loan from him. We have no right to expect one single hour to walk on his planet, breathing his air, eating his food, and, and having a sin nature. That's the, it's the amazing thing is not that people die under judgment, it's people are alive at all. That's the shocker in the Bible, isn't it? So the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed is the name of the Lord. And Christians would change if they lived this truth. And and uh, on and on. I mean, these, these uh, studies, I think, are, are very helpful. And we'll pause there in this first sermon from Volume 5 in our study of Acts, Witness of the Early Church, here on Encounter God's Truth. In his final years, Dr. John Whitcomb co-authored a commentary on the book of Acts with Pastor George Zeller of Middletown Bible Church, where these messages were first recorded. You'll find it among the free resources available on our website at whitcombministries.org. Next time, we'll share the conclusion of this message as we continue in this series on Acts. Until then, I'm Wayne Shepherd, reminding you that God's Word is true from the beginning to the end and praying that the Lord will bless you in the week ahead.